I'm Casey Bell from the Google Teacher Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, have you been wanting to tell your story on podcasts? Well, have you? Podcasts are a great way to grow your personal and business brand. KitCaster specializes in developing real human connections through podcast appearances. If you're an expert in your field, have a unique story to share, or an interesting point of view, it's time to explore the world of podcasting with KitCaster. Go to kitcaster.com TLLK12, or go to my webpage at stephenmaletto.com sponsors, click on the KitCaster logo, and apply for a special offer just for the friends of Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Nina Montianu, who's a Canadian ecologist and internationally published novelist of science fiction and fantasy. Today we're focused on two of her books, Water Is, The Meaning of Water, which is a nonfiction book, and A Diary in the Age of Water, which is a fiction book. She is such an informative and cool, engaging writer. You're going to love reading her works, and you're going to love hearing her talk today. Thanks for listening to so much cool stuff we're going to talk about. And by the way, before you go... It would be so awesome if you would go to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and rate and review the podcast. Could you do that for me? Thank you so much. Enjoy the show. Hey, do you need help in becoming more effective at teaching virtual classes? Well, NVTA, the National Virtual Teaching Association, has a semester program that is college accredited and designed to help you become more successful as a virtual teacher. A few of the topics that will be focused on are establishing relationships in the virtual environment, virtual instruction best practices, differentiation in the virtual classroom, and managing virtual resources, among others. NVTA is an affiliate partner with Teaching Learning Leading K-12, and there's so much there to help you be successful in the virtual classroom. Uh, So take a look. Go to my website, stephenmaletto.com, slash sponsors, find the NVTA logo, and click on it to take you to their website. Happy learning. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Nina Montianu is a Canadian ecologist and internationally published novelist of science fiction and fantasy. In addition to eight published novels, Nina has written award-nominated short stories, articles, and nonfiction books, which have been translated into several languages throughout the world. Recognition for her work includes the Midwest Book Review Reader's Choice Award, finalists for Forward Magazine's Book of the Year Award, the SLF Fountain Award, and the Delta Optimist Reviewer's Choice. Nina is a member of the Writers' Union of Canada and SF Canada. Nina regularly publishes reviews and essays in magazines such as the New York Review of Science Fiction and Strange Horizons. She serves as staff writer for several online and print magazines and was assistant editor-in-chief Imagigon, a Romanian speculative magazine. She currently writes for Amazing Stories. She is also an editor for Eagle Publishing House, which is in Romania, and Europa SF, a zine dedicated to informing the European SF community. Nina hosts the Age of Water podcast with co-host Claudiu Morgan, a, a podcast devoted to exploring water and environmental issues. They do monthly interviews with scientists, visionaries, authors of eco-fiction, and technologists on matters of the environment, climate change, and what we are doing to make a difference. 
Nina teaches writing at the University of Toronto and George Brown College. She also gives writing workshops and courses based on her award-nominated guidebook, The Fiction Writer, Get Published Right Now, Starfire World Syndicate. The textbook is used in colleges and universities throughout North America and Europe. It was translated and published by Editura Paralala 45 in Romania. The textbook, the, the next book in her writing guide series, The Journal Writer, Finding Your Voice, was released in winter of 2012 in Romanian by Editura Paralala 45 and in English in early 2013 by Starfire. The third book in her writing guide series is The Ecology of Story, World is Character, published in June 2019. This guidebook instructs on basic ecology and provides guidance in world building, role of place and story, and use of metaphor. Very cool. Nina's ecology and story world building workshop series is given across Canada to writers of eco-fiction, science fiction, and fantasy. Her recent book, Water Is, The Meaning of Water, is an educational book on water and stewardship. Considered a biography on water, it was Margaret Atwood's number one choice in the New York Times year in reading. Nina shares her time between Toronto and Vancouver in Canada. For more information about booking her workshops, online classes, individual con- consultations, or speaking appearances, go to www.ninamontinu.me. Her award-winning blog, the Alien Next Door, which I love the title. <laughs> the Alien Next Door hosts lively discussion on science, travel, pop culture, writing, and movies. And today we're going to focus on her latest book, A Diary in the Age of Water. So Nina, thanks so much for joining me today. Say hi to everyone. Hi there. Hi, everyone. Pleasure to be here. Oh, it's so awesome to have you here, Nina. And uh, I got so many questions to ask you. We got, uh, you have these amazing books and you are an incredible writing machine. I was looking at all the, the what you've written over over the years. Um, so before we get into A Diary in the Age of Water, let's talk about you. I mean, you've written many short stories, several novels, several nonfiction works and articles and more. Uh, on your website, you have a section that I love titled, Why Do I Write? Could you share about uh, why you write? Oh, yes. Yeah. That's quite an article. That gets that gets a lot of hits. A lot of hits. I can imagine. Um, well, you know, I have to start from when I was a kid because as a kid, I totally didn't read. Oh wow! <laughs> I I shouldn't admit to that. Yeah, I wasn't a reader. Uh, I had an older brother, sister, brother and sister who literally devoured the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew series. Those kind of books, right? Meantime, I was hiding in the back of Williams General Store and reading comics. That's what I love. Superman, Supergirl, Magnus Robot Fire, Green Lantern, those guys, right? I was uh, enamored with the fantastic. And so when I earnestly started to read things other than comics, this was when I was in college now, I came across the SF classics, Huxley, Orwell, Le Guin, and Asimov, to name a few. Uh, Ray Bradbury, he moved me. And his uh, Martian Chronicles just made me cry. I wanted to write science fiction like him and move readers that he'd done, like he'd done with me. But I also discovered the sensual classics, Thomas Hardy, George Eliot. So like most beginning writers, I started by imitating my favorites. So just imagine cross-genre chimeric stuff that I'd be writing, right? Thomas Hardy crossed with Ray Bradbury. Cool. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, it wasn't until I found my unique voice, which blended these with my passion for the environment, that my own voice emerged. The environment and how we treat it and ourselves by extension has always been something important to me since I was a kid, you know, when uh, littering was a pet peeve. In fact, it still is. I think that stories we tell help us define ourselves, uh, define humanity, ourselves included. And our role on this planet, 
climate fiction particularly, which is what I write, and uh, that, you know, eco eco literature and solar punk, they provide us with important narratives that both entertain and educate from cautionary tales to constructive visualizations of a potential future. And that, so it's that optimism that actually drives me to write. And that's, that's why I write. That's awesome. I love that. That's uh, it's so cool because you, you write a lot and it's neat to know that uh, there's this drive there. And I, I think that's cool. So uh, good stuff. Thanks for, thanks for sharing. Um, today we're going to focus on your book, a diary in the age of water. But before we do that, I got to look, I spent a lot of time with your book called the, the meaning, you know, water is the meaning of water and what a different, neat book. And I got to tell you that it's really cool because it, uh, first of all, I'd never thought of reading a book about water and, uh, you had me hooked from the very beginning. And, uh, uh, and so one of the things I want to do is pull something from the preface in the preface of water is you comment that you are a limnologist. What's that? <laughs> well, it's, it's not someone who studies limbs. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's what somebody suggested. <laughs> limbs, limbs. It's not spelled that way. Um, no. <laughs> limnos in Greek means freshwater and ology, the study of. So we have the study of freshwater. So essentially that's what a limnologist does. We're the complement to the oceanographers. Uh, so I'm like Jacques Cousteau in freshwater though, right? Nice. Not that I don't dive though. I don't, <laughs> I don't do that. Um, so limnology covers, essentially it's a holistic science that incorporates several disciplines, chemistry, physics, biology of water systems, waterways, and it includes the watershed. So it includes everything that informs a particular water body, surface or ground. So we look at land use and geography and chemistry of the land as well, you know, geology, that sort of thing. So that we're looking at its effect on water and then the biology and how things are changed that way. So it's, uh, as a limnologist, what I basically did was I was a field scientist and I went out zooming around in boats. Yeah, I did do that. <laughs> Very nice. And like uh, collect <laughs> collect uh, samples and then do assessments and that sort of thing. So the thing is, the difference with limnology and let's say something like uh, aquatic ecology, which is part of limnology, um, is that we look at the whole picture. We look at everything to do with it. So um, we look at watersheds and ecosystems. It's, it's a big science. That's excellent. That's uh, and I appreciate it. And the first time I saw it, I thought I, I thought I read Limeology. <laughs> I was oh. like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I do like green. You like green? Like <laughs> nice, green. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I did a second take. I was like, I don't uh, no. Okay, no, no read it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. So, uh, Water Is is a really cool book. One that I've never really ever seen the likes of before. And in the preface, you also say this, ultimately water will do its job to energize you and give you life, bring beauty to the world, then quietly take its leave. Water is magic. Water is you. So tell us about water. Oh, water. Uh, you have five hours? <laughs> um, well, briefly, yeah. Um, there's a quote somewhere by, I think I started off the book with a quote by, um, now I've forgotten his name, um, but it, essentially it's enough to say that water is, uh, here's paraphrasing his quote, 
water is it's dh dh lawrence now remember water is two two parts hydrogen one part oxygen but there's a third part and nobody knows what it is and 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 that sort of lingered that that sort of haunts every scientist of water everybody who studies it hydrologists limnologists aquatic ecologists chemists biologists etc there's that element there's that aspect of water that is an unknown that somehow makes it magical and this is something that scientists admit this is i mean we're not all alch- you know alchemists who are you know suggesting that we can you know, transform things or whatever. And yet water is very transforming. Water is uh, involved, very life associated. Wherever there is uh, water, there is life. Wherever there is life, you're going to find water. And this, in fact, has has, uh, been the basis for the whole entire space program looking for extra solar uh, life, uh, life in the galaxy, right? right? So they're looking for water. So that's the reason. Water, water has uh, amazing properties that make it unique, as in whatever form it is. For so, for one thing, it has these three main forms, right? Uh, it, it occurs as a gas, it occurs as a liquid, it occurs as a solid, and it occurs in stages between those those forms too. And some scientists are suggesting even a fourth phase of water, which is between the liquid and the solid, a kind of gel phase. And it's not the same as poly water, which was a debacle back in the the while ago where a certain phase of water was supposedly uh, discovered. Um, It makes sense that there are transition phases in, in water. But to go back to the anomalous properties, water has at least 70 anomalous properties that make it weird, essentially. It's a weird thing. So what I mean by that is it's it's different than every other liquid as a liquid. It's different than every other solid as a solid. And it's different than every other gas as a gas. It's also different in how it transforms from one to the other. So you can see Lots of possibilities for weirdness, weirdness, really. So um, some of the properties, you know, water is, is, has quantum properties. Water entangles, potentially. Uh, it's coherent. Um, it has cohesion and adhesion. Uh, cohesion meaning it likes itself, which is why it forms a ball. So as a liquid, it likes to form a, a round sphere. Not all liquids do that. Alcohol, for instance, goes flat. Um, its adhesion properties, which means it likes to stick to other things, allows water literally to run up a very tall tree and inform, I mean, basically give it water and then transpire out. So, I mean, the force is there, uh, transpiration and, and osmosis is there, but its property of adhesion also helps it move and slide up and stay stay on a drop of, you know, you ever see a, a leaf with a drop of water? It kind of hangs on yes. the leaf before it finally drops down. 
or on your dripping tap, which shouldn't be dripping, but often (laughs) is. And that water just kind of dangles there, say almost like it's hesitating. Should I go or should I not? (laughs) Should I, should I go with gravity or should I stick to this thing? And it's, so it's these awesome properties and I'm only naming a few. Another one, one more is as a, this is one that most people will know. And if you uh, drink scotch, for instance, on the rocks or whatever, you'll understand that as a solid, it's lighter than it as a liquid. This is, un, you know, this is not typical for other materials. So it floats, right? This right. is why ice floats and it has a different construction. And is this allows, in fact, it, it's uh, very important in nature because, because when ice floats as, because it's lighter, the ice forms a kind of a blanket for the liquid and the life that lives in the liquid beneath the ice that forms, let's say, on a frozen lake. So that's why uh, there's other reasons why it doesn't freeze solid as well, because the ice does float. It tends to want to be above. So that's why lakes don't freeze solid and it allows you know, life to flourish. So all these anomalous properties that water has makes it truly magical and makes it very life-giving. And I could go on and on with what water does. Heading into a little bit of another area, uh, which my book, Water Is Covers, right? Water is memory, water is, you know, has different titles. Right. Water is also very, uh, how would one describe it uh soothing let's put it that way soothing it it provides wellness it is well giving and one of the reasons for it there's a number of reasons water has uh provides certain frequencies in for instance the ocean creates something called infrasound which is very soothing to you know we we all respond to frequency right and frequency and vibration unknowingly this is why music is so beautiful because music is all frequency, really. And the sound of the ocean is very soothing. We love that sound. We love the sound of trickling water. We love the sound of, of a waterfall. On top of that, moving water, especially turbulent water that's sort of, you know, turbulating, crashing against itself, itself creates negative ions that then suspend in the air because water is always suspended in the air and these negative ions actually help to knock out positive ions which are essentially associated with dust and pollen so you can see the connection here wherever there's water there's going to be uh, moving water particularly that's key there's going to be an increase in negative ions which makes us feel better we, we feel that. We smell that freshness, but we also simply feel better. It's more fresh. Uh, there's this, this energy that we get. And uh, that's just wonderful. That is. I mean, that, that explains a lot, too, by the way. I have a little creek behind my house. And uh, we, we, had, uh, we had a couple of weeks of some pretty heavy storms. And uh, what's nice is that as a result of that, that means my little creek for a while has not has a nice sound that you can hear yeah that it's more oh, than just a trickle lovely. it's a nice just you're making me think of that right now because it is so yeah. soothing i like just to go and listen to that and 
Yeah. Then there's an owl that joins in once in a while with the sound that it's kind of nice too. But <laughs> Oh, that's cool. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good stuff. Hey, let's use this to move into a diary in the age of water. So this is a recent novel. And in the opening, I think I see a connection because it was really cool reading your Water Is book first and then looking at uh, um, reading uh, A Diary in the Age of Water because uh, I see uh, we've got a message coming here and it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in the opening, I think I see this connection between your thoughts and water is, and you say this, the first truth of water keeping, the first truth of water keeping is that water cannot be kept. So is there a connection or is this my imagination? Diary in the Age of Water is about protecting our water resources, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. That's the sort of the underlyingness to it. Is the that quote is is from the water keepers. We don't know who exactly they are, but the story starts off with a character. Her name is Keo. It's and she's in the far futures. We don't know exactly when. In uh, we do understand it's a dying boreal forest of Canada. What used to be Canada. And she is a different kind of person. She is a human, supposedly, but she's a blue being with many arms and presumably a water being, perhaps, right? A water sprite, maybe. Uh, at any rate, uh, she is essentially, she un eventually understands that she is a water keeper that they are all water keepers. So that's the connection there. But there's so much more to do with, with uh, what her actual role is. Um, it's almost more like a guardian on a journey. But I won't give it away because she, she does have a role that she needs to play. She finds out at the very end what, it, what that is. Um, so the book is actually primarily a diary by one of her ancestors that she finds. So it starts off, the book starts with her and it ends with her. And the middle part is the diary that she reads by this, who she finds out is an, an ancestor of her. She doesn't realize that it right away. And uh, yeah, so it goes from there. Very cool. So I gotta ask, so do you remember, I mean, what was your inspiration for, for a diary in the age of water? I mean, what was it that you're, that really made you go, hmm, I think I got a story here. Uh, yeah, well, it actually started with a short story I was invited to write in 2015 about water and politics in Canada. Uh, this was uh, by a publisher out in Rome, and one of my publishers in Rome. So I've been long thinking of potential ironies in Canada's water-rich heritage. As you know, Canada has a lot of water. So the premise I wanted to explore was the irony of people in a water-rich nation experiencing water scarcity and that's not unheard of um, they'd be living under a government imp imposed daily water quota of five liters a day uh, meantime you know bottling companies and utility companies are taking the rest of it so i named the story the way of water it was about a young woman hilda in near future Toronto, who's run out of water credits for the public W tap. So all, all the water is public now. You have to go to a tap and, and buy it literally. So by this time, waters, uh, houses no longer have potable water. Their taps have been cemented shut, not unlike what happened in Detroit. Um, and the only way to get water is through those public uh, W taps at great cost. So she's standing uh, two meters from water from the tap in a line of people waiting to use the tap, and she's dying 
of thirst. And she doesn't have credits. So the short story begged for more. And that inspiration came when I intended uh, a talk by Maud Barlow on her book. I don't know if you know Maud Barlow, uh, Boiling Point. Uh, she's with the Canadian Council, so the Council of Canadians. And she wrote a series of books, and the latest book was Boiling Point. It's about the water crisis in Canada, which in itself seems like an oxymoron, because most of us think that there's tons of water. I right. mean, and there is, right. but a lot of it is locked up. And in this scenario, not unlike uh, what is actually truly happening, which people don't realize, we are finding water scarcity, uh, particularly on our Indigenous peoples, unfortunately, where water is either polluted or it's moved somewhere else or diverted somewhere else. Anyway, to go back to the, the talk, so we were in a church. She was giving her talk in a church and gorgeous acoustics there. And I was, uh, and I noticed a young mother and her little six-year-old girl sitting up in the balcony. And um, I wondered, you know, what kind of mother would bring her little girl to a political talk about water in Canada? And from that, the direst character, Lina, and her mother, Una, came about. So I used those characters and came up with my characters for the book. And it went from there with Lina, the story, the novel. She became the diarist, writing about not just water shortage, but water-related phenomena like climate change, habitat destruction, hormone disruption, and the alarming increased infertility in humans. And it's all related. It's, it's um, so awesome that you connected all this. And you made, you made me ask about, uh, because... You know, it, it, and by the way, I got to say this because it is a scary thing thinking about your taps locked down and uh, yeah. not, not being able to yeah. access anything out of them. Because um, I think about, uh, you know, all the different ways we use water and uh, to not have the ability to to access it, to use it, to even, I mean, and especially to have enough money, enough credits to be able to, to even get part yeah. of it just for your thirst. It's a, it's a scary thing. Yeah, when something that is uh, important to your survival is politicized or uh, restricted, either politically or socially or whatever, through a you know a government, is that's really scary, and that that impinges on on all rights, rights of all life to have, you know, things that that they need like air and water, and we can name a, num a number of other things, but those are very much survival entities right yeah. things yeah um another thing that that i covered in in the book that was based on real precedence is the um inability or i should say uh, it was against the law to collect water and um in this scenario in this book so people who were living in in town were not allowed to put out rain barrels or anything that would collect water. Wow. And you might think that's bizarre, but that's actually the case in some states. Colorado, uh, I can name one, but I can't think of the other ones. There are several other states who, in fact, imposed just that law that people were not allowed to collect water. And this is the... the um, uh, 
the the thinking behind that, the logic behind that, or the excuse, I should say, <laughs> is that water belongs to the greater purport, the greater population, and therefore the government needs to handle it. So no one person can, you know, greedy like collect it for themselves, and it takes away an individual's ability to take control of their lives. So, so that's that's scary, and that's that's an existence. And I don't think it's just happening in, in some states. Uh, it's happening elsewhere. That's wild. I can't even imagine having that. that I'd, I'd look at my lawmakers. If they really, I mean, I think many of them have lost their mind, but I'd really think they lost their mind. They start <laughs> trying to tell me I can't collect my water in a rain barrel. No, but see, the, the thing is, if you just look at it from that standpoint, it seems ridiculous. But there's always some kind of rhetoric, some kind of logic that we don't, we're not privy to. And, and not, I'm not saying that that logic is a good logic, but there always is one. There <laughs> right. always is one. Right. Gotcha. That's, that's interesting. I, I, you know, one of the things that uh, I want to make sure that I, I ask you about is uh, um, your novel, basically, uh, what do you think is compelling for a reader to connect with the storyline? I mean, what, what is it that uh, you think kind of really sucks the reader into a diary in the age of water? Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> no, I, I, I have some feelings on that. Um, and I did think about that. I, um, I know this book, as a writer, I took some risks. And in fact, uh, one of the latest reviews on this book literally says that about me, which I quite like, you know, cool. it suggested that I'm a risk taker. And as an artist, that's probably one of the best compliments you can get. Um, because it means you're out there, right? Right, and, right. Um, of course, the risk being that it's either going to be great <laughs> or it's going to be terrible, <laughs> right. uh, as 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 uh, seen by a reader or a reviewer. That's. It's, I got to um, say this real quick because it's funny what you said because that could be said two different ways. Because it, either it's good <laughs> that I'm out there or it's not good because I'm out there. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what I mean. So so when I. Uh, conceived of the book, this risky business of conceiving of this particular book, uh, I was definitely taking a different path in my writing career. Uh, up to that point, I was writing fast-paced thrillers, uh, adventure stories, that kind of stuff, sci-fi, zooming around in space and this stuff. This one was much more ponderous. And in order to allow the reader to connect more with, with something that's more ponderous, I purposefully made it into a diary. Like lar the large part of the book is written as a diary. And it's, so it's someone who is writing about their life, you know, not unlike the very ordinary, truly very ordinary diary of Anne Frank. Look where that ended up, right? Yes, and yeah. It's it did not derive its tension from the story that it was telling more about the context within the story. Right. So right. that was the same purpose here. So this is why I, I wrote it the way I did. I had a, uh, a person in the future discover the diary and that created the context for it. So they were in the far future in a dying boreal forest and the circumstance we kind of wonder how it got that way because we have some description of what happened some disasters happened obviously 
And so we then have a reason for reading this. And then we read this, this information through a particular character who herself is, you know, she's a limnologist, so she's very informed. So she's able to connect with what's going on better than most others. She has more information about it. And she, so she brings in that context uh, in an informed way. So we read it that way. So we're, a lot of it is uh, something, it reads a little bit like nonfiction because she's writing about real things. In some cases, she truly is writing about real things. You know, the, the, she's a limnologist. So she starts off with a limnological quote from limnology from a textbook. So something that's really gritty and really real. And then she draws her fictive, in this case it's fiction, her experience into that. So we kind of get a blur. We're really not sure between where the fiction starts from where the you know, reality ended and what's real, what's current, and what's projected as an I projected. So that all gets, we're not sure, right? And I, that's what sucks the reader in. And it does because I've, you know, I've seen the reviews. That was the risk I took. I didn't know if that would work, but it looks like it does. The readers will draw their, their uh, interest from not knowing that. And they get you know, sucked into the whole story of you know, what's what. Um, so that was a purpose. Of, and so I wrote it that way, particularly. And I think it, I, I think it achieved its purpose. Oh, it did. It did. Especially, I got to tell you, um, having read uh, Water Is first, yep. and then immediately, I mean, immediately going into A Diary in the Age of Water, I had to remind myself that they're not the same book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and yeah. Because parts of it started feeling like I was in the back of your book of the water is where you get into the feelings associated with water and all kinds of stuff like that. And I was like, wait a second. I'm not, no, 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 no. Yeah, this is, yeah. I'm in a story. Oh, that's funny because, so, you know, I wrote one after the other, right? Right. So it kind of makes, makes sense. And you're right. The latter part of water is, is, is about feeling because it's, you know, the chapter headings change, right? They go from more scientific, like water is life, water is motion, and then they change to water is wisdom, prayer, water is joy. Right. So I bring in that, that sense of feeling. And in fact, a lot of the, the joy out of that was transferred to the character, the daughter character, Hildy, you know, Lina's daughter. And a lot of what she says, you could imagine, yeah, comes oh, very, very close to what's in water is. <laughs> very much so. I got to tell you, because it was funny. It's, I started to do it the opposite. I started to read um, the diary first and then, and I was like, but I flipped through a couple of pages and I went, no, 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 no. I want to go as, as I was oh, flipping. Oh, I'm glad you did and, that. That and was I, great. <laughs> it was so, cool. Yeah. And, and so just a note, it had an interesting impact on me, which was I had to remind myself <laughs> that That's I'm now in the, the novel. And uh, so yeah. I thought that was kind of cool. That was a neat feeling. So that was good, good stuff. Kudos there. That was. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Boone Titanium Rings, found on the web at boonrings.com, is an affiliate partner of Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12. And I'm also a customer. I have this really cool ring that's got these carved pistons and, and stars in it. I love it. They make rings of titanium that are carved, laser cut, and engraved, as well as they have inlays of many types of materials like meteorite, acrylic, wood, carbon fiber, and so many other types. They also have special collections that are incredible designs. One of the top sellers are the Gamer Rings, the Stealth Series, and the Black Zirconium. As a note, they also 
make earrings, pendants, cufflinks, and for you musicians, they make cool trumpet mouthpieces. Love it. Go to boonrings.com and at checkout, use my code, capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, number 12, and you'll get 10% off your purchase. So go check them out. I love my ring, and I know that you will love yours. One of the things that I, you, you mentioned this a little bit ago, and we've you kind of touched on this just a little bit. Could you talk a little bit about how you develop your characters? I mean, you know, are they based upon people you know? And then you gave us a little glimpse of that just a second ago with uh, where the, the daughter and mother came from. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, all my characters need to come from somewhere, that's for sure. They're not, uh, well, if I think about it, I suppose there are a couple that are just totally made up. Um, Daniel, who's a bit of an annoying know-it-all, conspiracy theorist, uh, genius scientist, is an interesting conglomeration. He, he, he started off being made up. And then I brought in aspects of other people that I know, and I mingled them together into this, this uh, oxymoron character, right? He's nice. kind of a weird guy. Uh, because he really is a, a scientist par excellence on the one hand, but he's also a crazy conspiracy theorist on the other. And then he's a bit of a loudmouth and he's a bit naive and, you know, that kind of stuff. And he just talks when he shouldn't talk. And, you know, uh, Lino was mentioning, oh, he was going past boundaries and not realizing that there's this protocol. You don't just walk up to your superior and, and tell him a, you know, a, a joke where Daniel would, you know, just didn't understand those things and didn't care. And uh, anyway, so yeah, he, he would be drawn from several people and that's usually how I get characters. Other characters will come literally from a scenario that I've come through and then I build on that. So, um, that's not a good explanation, is it? Um, I'm just thinking of one character that came from a dream, actually, where I dreamt about a particular person that I didn't know, but, you know, that came from that. Like, I guess an archetype, really. So some of my characters are literally conceived as archetypes. So they have a role to play. They have, they fulfill a, a kind of archetype, let's say a trickster or, or a, a mentor. And then I give them, I flesh them out as people. They still play the archetype, obviously, but I flesh them out as people from, usually from someone I know. And often it helps to bring in the physicality of someone I know. Of course, I'm not going to tell them. <laughs> well, maybe I will in some cases. <laughs> but, uh, but that really helped if I bring in. Uh, and it could be an actress or an actor or someone down the street that I saw or this sort of thing, or even a friend. And I'll bring in elements of, you know, how they wear their face and what I, I get that's behind that face. And that helps a lot. That helps bring these characters to life. That's very cool. It's a, you know, what's funny is that uh, I like what you just said. I may not tell them <laughs> because I, it depends on what the character does, right? <laughs> oh, definitely. definitely. It's, what's really funny is people never recognize themselves if they're in a story. And I think that happens a lot with storytellers. And what happens, what's really neat is I know when a character is fully formed and they need to be three-dimensional. They can't be just cardboard stereotypes 
this is what I'm, you know, there's a difference between an archetype and a stereotype. And to, to fully fulfill that archetype character and to be fully formed, I find that the best way to determine that for me is if the character speaks to me. In other words, if the character informs me, essentially, um, basically says, I'm, I wouldn't do that. And I'm writing, right? And, and the character goes, no, 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 no. I'm going this way. Nice. <laughs> and writers often say this, and it's, uh, it doesn't work exactly like that. I'm literalizing it. But it does, the character, if the character is, is if the writer knows the character well enough, and this, this comes down to needing to research sometimes to get to know that character, their backstory, their hidden motivations, their harmatias, uh, everything that is, is making that character go wherever they need to go. If the writer understands that well enough, the character will move, do the mo- moving through the story, if you know what I'm saying, as opposed to a, it's a, that's sort of the difference between a, a pantser and a plotter yes. when, when they're outlining or creating their story. And I, I do both, to be honest. I, I plot, but I also let the characters feed the plot. And they, they should inform each other for a good uh, story with a lot of depth. So if you have a, a story that's just plot, and they can be, you know, plot-driven, it won't necessarily, it won't necessarily have the depth because it's not based on the character informing the plot sufficiently. So the depth comes from understanding that the characters have hidden motivations even to themselves that allow the story to have many uh, iterations of the overall theme, to have a theme for starters, and to have iterations of that theme based on those, those little bits of those characters. If you don't know enough about your character and their backstory, you're never going to be able to reach that, and the character won't inform you in terms of what, where they have to go and what they have to do. This is so cool. Cause this is, you know, and, and actually I was going to ask you if you were, if you outlined or if you kind of let your imagination run with it and uh, see where it went. And uh, this is, this is cool to hear how, how you develop the, the ideas that become your story. Yeah. So I guess to answer that a little bit more uh, in detail, I do both. Uh, I start off usually with a bit of an outline. I know, I usually know where the, the story has to go. If you if you don't know that, then you start to flounder a little bit, and um, you can do that for years. <laughs> so I've be, I've become efficient because I put out a book, generally speaking, a book a year. Nice. One and I I shift between fiction and nonfiction. So fiction one year, then the next year nonfiction, and I could be working on both at the same time. But you know that's sort of how they come about. You have to become efficient. And you do, as a professional writer, you start to learn what process works for you. And for me, it's usually starts off with a pseudo outline in which I understand more or less uh, based on the theme. I have to know the theme. I have to know the so what part, what's important to the characters, what their overall journey is going to be. So then I kind of know what the ending is going to be. More or less, it could have a couple of different tales, but more or less based on the journey. And then from that, that, so that's the initial outline. And then from that, I build the characters and, and then I 
literally discover scenes, kernels. Um, Diana Gabaldon talked about that. She's the author of those awesome, the Outlander. And she gave an excellent talk once about her process. And she talks about kernels. Kernels that then inform the rest of the, the, the string of pearls that create a story. And each kernel is a dramatic scene that involves, you know, one or two characters that are discovering something or doing something that's, you know, very important to the core of the story. And then she places them. She writes that out and it's kind of sits there. (laughs) I don't exactly do that, but I do find those kernels. And so, so sometimes I'll have a book that has this scene written and another scene written, and and I still have to fill in in between. I have to create that connective tissue nice. to these little, you know, parts of a spine, for instance. But the point is, it holds itself, and it's all part of this long process, this long narrative that has an arc. So knowing that, it's important. So it, there's, it's a loose enough outline that it allows the pantsy part to come in, and to you know the the inspiration from even going for a walk and seeing something that then informs to a certain character or reading something, doing research. I'm always doing research all the way through on some event that impinges on this other character and then allows the whole thing process to move sort of like an amoeba. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. uh, You know, one of the things I want to, um, make sure I ask you here is that when I was reading your blog, um, I was reading some of these different articles that you write. Um, one of the terms I came across that you use is something, I think I'm pronouncing it right. Cli-fi like is in cli-fi. Cli- yeah. is it- that's, um, that's a recent term, although it's, it's used an awful lot right now. And it was actually developed by a friend of mine. Oh my gosh, I've forgotten his name now. <laughs> He's going to kill me. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, I'll think of it in a minute. Anyway, he, um, he just liked the irony of sci-fi, and he was a strong proponent of adapting to climate change and uh, a writer. He was a journalist. I think he lives in uh, Taiwan somewhere. And uh, his, his background is in journalism. And he came up with that term, cli-fi, uh, basically because it's linked with sci-fi, but not exactly sci-fi, because uh, some cli-fi could be regarded as, as uh, um, literary fiction that has climate, uh, climate in it. So That's climate fiction is another term, right? right. So eco-fiction, eco-fiction, climate fiction, environmental fiction, eco-lit, and cli-fi are all around the same thing. They're slightly different depending on who's um, uh, defining them. But they're all related to the same thing. And and that thing is that environment and climate as part of environment plays a lead role and could in fact be a character. So I just remember the name of the, the fellow, his name's Danny Bloom. And uh, yeah, he's a crazy guy. <laughs> Very nice. That's that's cool that he he coined that. And it's it's so recent because I was going to ask you know, and I was going to ask you if you would, if uh, you know, a diary in the age of water would would be considered cli-fi. 
Uh, definitely. In in uh, both his definition and my definition of cli-fi, it's definitely, I would also call it eco-fiction, climate fiction, eco-lit. Uh, I would uh, also call it uh, fem-lit. Uh, it's, you know, it's focuses primarily on four generations of women. Um, so it's, it's, it's very female oriented. Um, it's also a dystopia because it uh, brings out, it's a cautionary tale that looks at, you know, what could happen, what is happening actually in this case and where it could go. So it's, it has all those possible descriptions. Awesome. This is, and it's a, it's, Definitely, it's a driven book. You read it and you get sucked into the, the storyline and it does make you worry about, you know, you start thinking about things like I, um, you know, we're on audio, so they can't see it, but I have I have a cup of tap water with me and uh, yeah. thinking about uh, putting the magic back in me instead of drinking a bottle of water or typically I'm someone who finds a soda, so. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so right now there'd be yeah, a lot well. of people looking at me going, you have water? Oh my gosh. <laughs> So <laughs> today you do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. So you're helping me. You. You're helping you, me drink my water. So, <laughs> and it's it, you just had to know you did. You made a major impact on me the whole way through the oh. book too. Because I was oh, like, I got that makes me feel so good. <laughs> you know, honestly, that's what a writer wants to hear <laughs> that they have moved someone, that they have changed, possibly even changed someone, changed their perspective that they've informed them, that they've certainly entertained them. And that's the key is that uh, a a writer of good fiction will inform by entertaining. And that was, I think that was the risk that I took with this particular book because there was a lot of it that was informing, right? Right. both, Both real and fictive as in premise, as in predicting. But the entertaining part came with sucking you into the story. So hopefully, I mean, it did do that. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. So, (laughs) (laughs) so good, good stuff. So, uh, you know, uh, um, we're, we're getting close to finishing up, Nina. Is there anything that you want to make sure that you share with our audience about uh, a diary in the age of water? Wow. Well, we covered a lot with it. So, uh, I'm happy with what we have. Okay. Uh, Yeah. I, I mean, I could open up a whole bunch of other things. Um, you know, one, I guess one thing that, that a diary was about that is more negative and more about what's going on in reality that, that I did not do in Water Is. I mean, Water Is was a celebration of water, right? It was right. A, every chapter had, you know, answered the question water is you know water is magic water is joy water is this water is that and i left out what i left out purposefully was a lot of the negative stuff that's going on and to do with water scarcity particularly and water politics and geopolitics and vandana shiva's is one of the the people she's a scientist who is really really championed water and water politics uh, against water wars and stuff like that. She's from India. And of course, there's a lot going on there. Uh, you know, you can imagine the water scarcity throughout the world is, is, is really becoming a, a water crisis. And, uh, you know, China, for instance, just to, you know, 
just to touch on a few things. China's leading the world in rainmaking, by the way, right? Rainmaking and manipulation. Of course, this is really pissing everybody off. Because <laughs> they're, they're really, they're, what they're doing is they're robbing other places of water. So again, gotcha. it's a, a, a way of diverting water from one place to another. Um, and this is uh, <clears throat> what's happening there. Um, Egypt is, you know, planning to pump water from Lake Nasser into the Sahara. I just saw a documentary on that not too long ago. And that's causing tensions because there's nine upstream countries <laughs> looking for to control the water of the Nile, right? The right. watershed. And they're putting in dams. So the Sudanese and the Ethiopians are building dams and Tanzania is pumping water from Lake Victoria. Kenya's diverting lakes that are feeding Lake Victoria, right, into its arid areas. India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and China, they're all in conflict, right, for control of major rivers, the Indus, the Ganges, and particularly the Brahmaputra. Uh, so I don't know if you've heard India's has a river link plan, but it's totally impacting Bangladesh. It's helping India, but it's, you know, so this is what's going on. There's wow, right. country between countries. So meantime, you know, they're fighting over water, Kashmir, Pakistan, and India. In the meantime, the Indus is drying up, and it's not even, it's drying up, so it's not even flowing into the ocean anymore. Similarly to the Colorado River, right, in the States. Uh, Meantime, Russian scientists are reviving a 1930s Soviet plan to reverse some of Siberia's largest rivers um, to the former Soviet republics. This is very similar to the USA's 1960 plan to divert Canada's northward waterways south to rehydrate America's drying Midwest. I'm talking about NAWAPA. Um, NAWAPA stands for North America Water Power Alliance. This was put forth to Congress who, who were considering it in the 60s and the 70s. And this would have, this would have literally diverted I'm thinking, I don't have the figures in front of me, about a tenth, if not more, of, of British Columbia's land would become a reservoir for, wow. that would then be uh, diverted down to the, the states. So it's just the, well, I'm talking about the um, Rocky Mountain Trench Reservoir, which is uh, 500 miles long. So it'd be huge. Yeah, one tenth of British Columbia. So, these things are happening and they're kind of quiet on the one hand because, right. you know, the general public isn't aware that of these things. And yet there they are. This NAWAPA plan, as a, which um, is in the book, I took, took that and I created a premise that, in fact, it, the project went ahead and what would that would look like. And uh, in fact, my sequel is going to be talking a lot more about that. But um, most people don't really understand all the, the ins and outs and the consequences of water diversion and, you know, potential water wars and created water scarcity. I mean, there's, a, there's the same amount of water on the, on the planet right now as there was when the dinosaurs mm. lived, you know, when they quenched their thirsts in the Triassic. Same amount of water. It's just that it's shifted here and there. Sure, some of it is in glaciers, and it's going to be released pretty soon uh, to, you know, causing other problems. Um, but that fresh water is cycling in the water cycle. You know, it's in the air all the time. 
and it's the same amount. And yet here we are, a number of us in water scarcity. And there's the Midwestern states who are, you know, handling drought. There's the wildfires in California. So it's, it's not so much the amount of water, it's where the water is being distributed and where the water is being held that is causing all these problems. And of course, climate change is exacerbating that, exacerbating the extremes. Gotcha. And that's, that's interesting. You know, it, you don't, unless it's right there in your face, um, you know, you really don't hear anything about that. And the, in the state of Georgia, there's been a battle with Florida for a long time. And I think it may also yeah. embattled a little bit of Alabama, but the, the Chattahoochee that flows from the north to the south and, you know, feeds all the way down into Apalachicola, Florida, um, and soon I'll run out of all the information I know. But the, <laughs> um, but the point is, is that uh, whatever Georgia's claim was, was recently, uh, um, this is made, made news recently because there's been some findings, yeah. which has been interesting. But it's, it's been one of those things that lots of people use it on its way down as it's flowing uh, south. And uh, um, to use yeah. a better term than down, I guess. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Stephen, I want to end up on a positive note. Um, okay. you you teach um, you teach in high school, right? Well, I, I'm a uh, I work with uh, schools. I'm I'm not a oh, teacher okay. any longer. A long time ago, I was a high schools. school history teacher, and I've been a principal, assistant principal, all that sort of stuff. And now I, I, I work with uh, um, basically I, I function as uh, service and support for uh, ten uh, different school systems in the state of Georgia. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Well, I do. I, uh, as you know, I talk to students quite a bit. I do water uh, presentations to schools, um, high schools, mostly gotcha. some elementary. And one of the things that I do is I get everyone to sit and look at who's next to them. And then I explain in explaining the water cycle. Um, I focus on one aspect of water that we never think about, and that's the water vapor, water in the air. Water is so prevalent and so uh, plentiful in the air, we, we forget. I mean, we see the rain, it comes down, it's in the clouds, but it's there. It's literally throughout the air. So um, we're breathing it in and we're breathing it out. We literally are breathing water in along with the air that we breathe in mm. and then we're breathing it out. So two things to take from that. So I tell them to look at the person that's sitting next to them and I say, okay, well, guess what? You're breathing that person's what they've exhaled and they're breathing in what you've exhaled. Now, of course, now with COVID, that's a given, right? right. People are thinking about that right now. <laughs> right, right. But the, the point is I'm having them focus not on the air and not on COVID, but on water. I and mean, this was pre-COVID when I was doing most of these talks. So they're literally breathing in each other's water. And I take that a step further. So when you're even by yourself, you're wandering about your house. What water are you breathing in? Well, it'll be the closest water body. Water, of course, evaporates off surface water. M mine is uh, a river here. When I lived in Toronto, it was Lake Ontario. So when I was giving my talk there, I was telling everybody, well, guess what? You are Lake Ontario. You're more than two-thirds water. You're breathing water in, and you're breathing it out. So you are literally breathing in Lake Ontario. Hmm. 
So taking that as a connecting, uh, as, a, as a moment of connection, um, take the next step and take ownership of that and look after that water body that you're next to. You know, do a cleanup. Um, tell people about it. Uh, get your community involved in cleaning up and in stewarding that water source because that's you. And that's, that comes back to my original quote, right? right. Water is you. Very much. That's, that's awesome because it does. It brings it full circle. I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. Before we go, do you want to share anything about your, uh, your uh, podcast called Age of Water? Yeah, that came about. Uh, in fact, it came about uh, Claudio and I are good friends. Uh, he's also a writer and he writes about water. He writes a wonderful uh, book called Water. Oh, now I've forgotten it. <laughs> I think it's called Water Entanglement. Anyway, um, he, he, uh, he's, he had been doing some podcasts before, and I have been on many podcasts, and I was thinking it would be nice to do that, like to interview people. And so he came up with the idea to join up, to be co-hosts. And he came up with the, the title based on my book that, was, uh, that I was writing. It was going to come out, Age of Water. So we called it Age of Water, and and our uh, you read you read the um, uh, the mantra, the mission statement before, and uh, was basically to bring awareness um, about water, particularly, but anything to do with the environment, uh, by having guests who are either visionaries, scientists, or just concerned citizens who have something to say, who are doing either you know just anything from keeping a water garden to planting trees to something that they know that they can, uh, you know, share with the audience. And uh, we've, we've had the show on for about a year now and we're, we're currently on hiatus, um, but uh, you can access it by going to ageofwater.ca. And there's some lovely guests there. A lot of them are, a number of them are writers, writers of, of fiction. And, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And I think podcasts are like, like yours. They're an excellent way to go. Excellent. People love to just listen, right? You right. don't have to um, read, you know, you can just literally listen. It's, it's wonderful. You can do it in the car. You can do it wherever you are. So yeah. That came about. Very cool. Very cool. Thanks for sharing. And I, that's what I love about the format, wherever you can take it with you, which is so neat. So exactly. good exactly. stuff. I, one other thing I wanted to ask you is uh, you're also a writing coach. You want to tell people about what the, they could get from you? Yeah. Oh, thank you for mentioning that. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I've been coaching writers for quite a few years uh, since the early 2000s when I was, uh, my own career was taking off and uh, you know, I, I publish my writing guides, as you mentioned, and I use them uh, to help people um, with their books. So what I do is I, um, I'm a coach. I'm not an editor. There's a difference. Uh, I usually, I will work with people right from an idea, in fact, to a premise, which is the same thing, sort of. A premise is, is when an idea then becomes dramatized into a story. And uh, so I work with people who are just starting off. I work with, with people who just have outlines, who want to discuss things. And I work with people who have a first draft out and need to see if it, you know, needs to go somewhere, both short and long. And uh, I'm an avid short story writer. I've written a number of short stories. I love that format. 
So I help a number of people with short stories as well. Uh, anything from, and ten, the tendency is to, uh, I, I prefer, I guess, um, science fiction, which is what I write, fantasy, anything that's science related. But I've done comedies and romances and memoirs as well. Very uh, cool. It's good fun. It sounds like it. They're very cool. And there's, they can find more of that information uh, on on your uh, on your uh, web page, I believe. Uh, and and so, can you tell them, um, tell everyone, Nina, where uh, if someone wanted to connect with you or learn more, where they, you could send them? Sure. There, there are my I guess three main websites. Uh, NinaMontiano.me is my coaching site, and I have a lot of advice on writing there. All kinds of articles to, that are helpful. Um, you know, anything from writing a query to plot versus, you know, plot versus theme, that kind of stuff. And then I have another site, which is about me as a writer. So what I've got out there, what's going on. So that's ninamontiano.ca. And then I have a fun site that's just sort of me and pop culture and things that are happening in the world. And that's called the Alien Next Door. You just, you know, write that in, you'll find me as opposed to the book that's out. And uh, I can, you know, I'm, and I'm on social media quite a bit. I'm on Facebook uh, under my name and I'm on Twitter. And again, the Twitter handle is alien next door and I'm on LinkedIn and, Oh, I don't know. A bunch of other stuff. Very cool. <laughs> the, you know what? The, the best way to find me is just to Google my name, Nina Montiano. There aren't too many of us out there. <laughs> I share with uh, a German singer and uh, some scientist out in Romania, I think. But other than that, there's just me. So if you look me up, you'll find me wherever I am. Very nice. Very nice. Well, I'll put those also those links in the show notes. So they're, they're there for someone to easily find and get, get in touch with you. And um, I got two last questions I want to ask you. And they're just questions I like okay. to ask my guests. And the first one goes like this. How do you keep going when, you, when so much is going on that you may want to quit? Oh, that's a great question. You know, um, I have a whole chapter on that in, in the fiction writer. It's, you know, it's usually about writer's block. And I'm talking, I guess we're talking about writing or anything. Anything, actually. Anything. I find that stepping away from what you're trying to do, it works the best. It's, it's the least, you know, it's like water, funnily enough. You know, water... Uh, finds a, a rock in the way, what does it do? It goes around it. And then funnily enough, eventually it wears that rock. So eventually goes where it wanted to go. The rock might not be the best example, it takes forever, right? <laughs> but you know, some obstacle anyway, and eventually it will wear it away, just like, you know, moss does the same thing. And the lesson with that is, is patience, exercising patience and going around as opposed to butting your head against the wall all the time. And it really works. In writing, uh, which is my main pursuit, uh, and this, this could be with anything, this could be with dealing with a person or dealing with a problem, the best, uh, one of the, the reasons that it's good to walk away from it is that your vision of something you know how when you look directly at something, you have a, a view of it? Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's, you see much more if you have a peripheral vision and you get a different perspective on the same thing. And that's sort of what walking away from it does. You keep it with you, 
you can't do, you can't stop that. You can't stop thinking about it. Let's say you have a problem, right? It's going to sit there with you, right? But by consciously going away from it, you're sending it to a different part of your brain where you're problem solving. And in the meantime, you're experiencing something nice. And this is the other part of it is that you're going into something that, that you're not frustrated about. And I find this particularly with writing. If I'm stuck on a character or stuck on a plot point, which I am right now, which is really interesting, I don't fret about it. I don't stress it. I go and do something else that's really cool. I'll go even something totally different, like go for walks, go see a movie. Can't do that these days so much, but go for walks. (laughs) (laughs) I go for another walk anyway, or, or read a book or do some other research. So you're engaging your brain in something that, that you're in an explore mode. That's what I find you're in discovery and the other will solve itself. It's just wonderful how that works. That's awesome. I love that. Thank you. Uh, Last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given a chance to say thank you? Oh, well, I already said thank you to him. And when I, my first book got published and he was my English teacher, but he, he was an amazing English teacher. He was the first teacher of that school. I might be aging myself here quite a bit. Prior to him, English was just uh, probably the most boring subject ever. And it was boring for me. And it was just read this book and write a book review. You know, what happens and this and that, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and I just hated that. Anthony Whittle did. Tony Whittle was he brought metaphor in. He introduced me to metaphor. He introduced me to symbolism. And suddenly the world of books opened up for me. It was, storytelling was so much more suddenly. It had depth, it had meaning, it had connection. And he introduced us to that. So that's something that I took with me and, and uh, continue to do. So I, I must thank you, Stephen, for bringing that up. You gave me a chance to say that and to appreciate, truly appreciate this one man who I think did so much for my career and my life. That's so awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. And uh, Nina, thanks so much for talking with me today. Diary in the Age of Water delivers a powerful message about conservation of our natural resources and all should read your book and hear its messages and and just get sucked into the story too, which is really cool. So, and uh, (laughs) as well as I got it, I know it's, not the main topic for today, but you got to go back and check out Water Is because that's a unique, unique read there too. So good stuff. I wish you the best in all you do. Thank you so much, Stephen. It was a, it was a hoot. It was a lot of fun. Thanks again. Hey, Steve here. And my podcast, Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is hosted on Podbean. If you use my affiliate link when you sign up for podcast hosting, you will get one month free. I've been on Podbean for the whole existence of my podcast since November of 2013. In that time frame, I've had nonstop service. I've had easy access to assistance when I needed help. I've been able to upload unlimited pictures and podcast episodes. The dashboard is easy to use. My Podbean community has grown tremendously. Looking at starting a podcast? Well, use my affiliate link to get one month free of hosting. Go to my website at stephenmaletto.com sponsors and click on the Podbean hosting link 
to see what plans are offered and choose the one that you like the best. You'll be glad you did. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.